welcome to the Gig Stories podcast with me, Alex. And me, Chris. In this episode, we have a great time speaking to the Manchester legend, Clint Boone. We talk about life as a teddy boy and that band you may have heard of, the Inspiral Carpets. We talk about the time the Inspirals met REM at Glastonbury, and that is a hoot. It's well worth listening to. Uh, We talk about No Gallagher. We talk about the early days of Oasis. It's a great one. Sit back and enjoy. But beware, there are a few words which some of you may find a tinsy bit offensive. There's a bit of blue language. So enjoy our very first interview with Mr. Clint Boone. So here we are, Chris and I are with the very first guest of this new podcast, new series. Chris, tell us who it is. Today we have uh, the one and only Clint Boone, founder member, keyboard player from the Inspiral Carpets, DJ, polymath, and uh, all-round top geezer. What, what's a polymath? <laughs> I mean, why is it? Why is a polymath? He does everything. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, I'll explain that. Yeah. Stephen Fry is a polymath. <laughs> and I've never, I've never used that word in my life. I've never been described as it. But uh, thank you. Yeah, I do. I do. I always think of it like my dad. My dad always had a lot of, a lot of skills and a lot of income streams <laughs> because he's you know very working class. You know, and worked in the cotton mill, bread poultry you know to sell uh, had a window cleaning round so he always had a lot of he didn't have his eggs all in one basket and I've learned a long time ago that especially in the music industry you know being in a band a successful woman you can't assume that's going to last forever so mm. um, I've always armed myself particularly since the Inspiral split in 95 which we eventually reformed but yeah since that moment in time I've always made sure I've got a lot of things to do um not just relying on one income stream, you know. So, so that's yeah. going in the Twitter biography then. Polymath, polymath, polymath yeah. <laughs> Clint Boone, polymath. polymath. I'm going to look, I'll look it up in a bit and get the actual. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, interesting, isn't it? But yeah, polymath. But yeah, thanks for having me. Anyway, and, uh, honestly, it's a it's a real pleasure, and I don't want to mislead people, but we've met a few times, Clint, and you know, I'd call you a very friendly acquaintance. But I don't know about you, Chris. It's still hard for me to not fanboy because I have so much nostalgia so many memories linked with yourself right. and and this podcast is all about live music and live gigs and as a young lad one of my very first gigs was Michael Jackson I was a very stereotypical young boy liked pop music and then started getting influenced by my sisters and she this was in Cardiff and she started dating this lad from Manchester and he'd come down in his Fiat Panda every now and again <laughs> and he was listening to these bands and they're going, what is this rubbish? And he said, oh, it's the Inspiral Carpets. What? What What even name is that? <laughs> <laughs> and then he'd be telling me about these live gigs he was going to, you know, James and the Inspiral Carpets. And I, he, he made a compilation tape for me and you are song one really? on on side one i've still got that tape so this is a this is an absolute pleasure and then mixed in with that years later uh my you know live gig experiences with the inspiral so it's just fantastic to have you uh, to have you with us so clint tell us 
before the Inspirals, tell us a bit more about your childhood and was live music and going to live gigs, was it a part of your childhood? Was it something in the family or, or are you quite different? It was definitely not part of my childhood. I remember mum and dad in probably 1972, uh, we lived in, we lived above, we had a corner shop in uh, Oldham, we lived above it. And I remember mum and dad one night getting on a coach to go to Batley Variety Club. Oh, to yes. See, to see Shirley Bassey. I remember thinking that was like, to me, that was such an exotic notion. Because yeah. we'd grown up with records and we, we grew up listening to mum and dad's records and listening to the radio. So it was, we were a music family in terms of, we loved music, you know, we, we consumed music. It was always being played in the house. It yeah, was very... But, but we weren't musical. Nobody in the, we didn't have a musical bone in our body, any of us. You know, my mum and dad weren't musicians or anything. Just, really? They just loved music and, you know, they'd play music. So, and we'd see it on TV, obviously. The Top of the Pops was a big thing every Thursday night. <laughs> but going to a gig, it just wasn't even... It wasn't on my radar until probably 74, 75, really. But I remember mum and dad going seeing Shirley Bassey and thinking... My mum and dad are cool, you know, they're getting on a bus to travel over to Yorkshire, wherever it is, Batley, to watch Shirley Bassey and coming back the same night. And um, so, yeah, we, we, it wasn't, you know, going to a gig wasn't a thing, you know, in, in, that, in our family until um, 74, 75. I think my first gig was Dr. Feelgood at the, <laughs> um, I, I always think it's the Opera House, but I think it might have been the Palace. Brilliant. I think it was the Opera House. But anyway, it was Dr. Feelgood. And I still got the poster upstairs from, that, that, from that, that gig. That was my first gig. But around at the same time, we were probably going to little gigs in like youth clubs, you know, like seeing bands in the local youth. Yeah, yeah. So that didn't really count for me. It, but, um, it's funny that, because I, I, I have similar memories in as much as, and it was generally my mum who would go. Yeah. And it, I remember it being, because we were, you know, very working class as well. And so I remember it being a massive deal. Yeah. So maybe once or twice a year, my mum would go and see this, you know, this guy called Neil Diamond, yeah, at St. Right. David's Hall in Cardiff, or, yeah. um, you know, someone of a similar ilk. So for me, sort of live music like that, or a big gig or a concert was always a big thing. Yeah. I, I never knew as a young lad that small venues and smaller bands, that that was sort of, a thing so yeah, it, my no, eyes it was definitely not not in my really my no. childhood no well I mean because small small Scottish town I wasn't going to travel an hour to get to Edinburgh to go yeah. and watch a band so yeah um, certainly not at the age of 12 or whatever you know once I had that first taste so that was that I was down there probably every couple of months I'd be going to a gig you know like I was big into Shuadu Adi at the time as well believe it or not it was the only favourite <laughs> band until, yeah. until Punk happened Shuadu Adi was my favourite band you know I was like I was a teddy boy. Um, really? And I was always yearning for authentic 50s rock and roll, but that had gone, you know, like in the early yeah. 70s. It, it wasn't a thing, you know. People like Bill Early and Elvis were starting to die off, literally, you know. So yes. I was never going to see these icons of mine. But what we did have in Britain at the time, the glam rock scene was very much 50s rock and roll, played mm. by younger blokes in yeah. platform boots and sequins you know what I mean? a bit more as well in, in the early 80s because I remember the first band that I properly got into was a Stray Cat that's right yeah yeah. and I thought <laughs> yeah. they were I thought they were dangerous I yeah. thought they were edgy and um, yeah I mean, and it was only Top of the Pops or maybe 
multicoloured swap shop you'd yeah. see them on. Or, yeah. Uh, but that, that was about it. But yeah. when they were on, stray cats are on. They're, they're dangerous. More edgy. They were more edgy. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I mean, that, that glam stuff, like when I listened to like Mud, um, the Rubettes, obviously, mm. Matchbox were a band where they, even some what Boy was doing, some of it was definitely arcing back to 50s rock and roll. So that was how I ended up getting into Shuadu. You know, one day this band walk onto New Faces, I think it was, talent show. Yeah. And it's like, the teddy boys, they're actual teddy boys, eight of them. And um, so yeah, I, fell, <laughs> I fell in love with Shuadu Addy. And uh, that carried on right up until December 76. I was at art college at the time in Rochdale. And a couple of records had arrived in the, we had like, a, our studio was an open plan. All, all the students worked in this open space. And there was a record player in the middle of the room. And anybody that brought the records and you knew that your record was going to die in that room because people would be, they'd have clay on their hands, you know, <laughs> turn the record over. Art you know, students. People throwing paint. So if you brought a record in, you were sort of sacrificing it yeah. to, the, to the room. Um, <laughs> so these records started appearing. That the, the word punk, the phrase punk hadn't been coined, I don't think, you know, from late summer of 76. You know, a Ramones album arrived. Like, look, at, look at this band. Mm. Look at this band. They've they got holes in the jeans and... Look at the haircut, look at the ball head on that one. Pillock. <laughs> so yeah, these records started appearing. And then there was one of the lads in the college was Phil Diggle. He was an art student. And his younger brother, Steve Diggle, was in a band, Buzzcocks. And Phil used to tell us about his band. And we were like, he was a bit of a character, Phil. He was no like proper. He, used to, he, he was a smoker, but even if he didn't have a cigarette, he'd be doing that with his fingers. Holding it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so you should come and see our, our kids' band are playing. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so we told us about the, the, the gig that's coming up at the Electric Circus, December the 9th, um, 76. It was a Thursday night, and we, it, Buzzcocks were playing, along with Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers, it was a big American band, The Clash and Sex Pistols. So it's like, let's go. And I think the, the Sex Pistols had just had the moment on TV. So we knew then that something exciting was happening, plus our mates, brothers' band are playing. So I went down from art college, got, got suited up in our little outfits that we used to make ourselves, went down to this gig. And it, it was literally the same week, I think a few days after, I think Shuadu Adi had gone into the charts with Under the Moon of Love. And let's go for a little walk. <laughs> under the Moon of Love. I want to tell you, I want to tell you that I love you. I want you to be... And I was buzzing off this record. It was like the greatest thing I'd ever heard. That was in the charts the week that I went seeing the Sex Pistols. And it was almost like I just came out of that gig and it was like, sorry, Shuadu Addy, but that's <laughs> time to put you away for a bit. And, you know, literally. So all... that night you saw the Buzzcocks, yeah. the Sex Pistols, yeah. and the Clash. And the, the Clash. Clash. Yeah. And Johnny Thunder's Heartbreakers were like. On the same bill? Same bill, £1.20, I think it was, to get in. What what was the, oh my oh my gosh I'm dying I'm was, literally I'm literally what, it, dying. It wasn't like I didn't think I was watching history being made, which I was, but I didn't. It was more a case of within me everything changed. It's like everything up until that moment. I was I went to art college thinking I'll probably go and be an art teacher, or I might become a, a painter hmm. or a photographer. But it's like. When when I, when I saw what was happening that night on stage, because they were mainly working class kids, you know, just with not a lot of musical talent, really. None of them were 
extremely brilliant musician. No, 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 no. And I'm thinking like, because until that point, I'd always thought I was going to be, I'd resign myself to the fact that I was always, even though I dreamed about being Elvis Presley or whatever, I was always going to be on the other side. I was going to be a music buyer. I was never going to be a rock star because you had to have talent, you know, to, to be in a band like, I mentioned Mud before and The Sweet and even bands like that, you had to be a good musician to be in them. Yeah. And, you know, to be in a band like Cream, or, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're yeah. just like, you, you couldn't blag it. You couldn't be a shit bass player. Yeah, yeah. You had to be good. And then suddenly that night in the circus, I'm just thinking like, I could do that. Was, I, was, I, was that genuinely? Because that's a question I have. Was there a moment when you thought, I want to be on stage performing live music? Was that really that, that moment, that gig, that night? I dreamt about it since as far back as I can remember. Watching Elvis as a kid and just thinking, that's what I've I'd love to do that, mate. But yeah. not really believing I could do it because yeah. people from Oldham didn't do it. Do you know what I mean? P- people from Oldham that lived in a corner shop, it, it, it didn't happen to them. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. So, but suddenly, you know, watching like Steve Diggle with the Buzzcocks, yeah. you know, my mate's brother with this amazing band and, and you know, the feeling that there was, there was something going on in the message that these musicians were making as well. I was never really a political kid. Yeah, you know we were working class family. We, we had we went without a lot of stuff. You know we were out, outside toilet. They had to share with like five or six other families until nineteen seventy two or seventy three or something. Yeah. Um, so it was very it was very working class. But I always felt safe, felt warm, felt loved. You know, so I wasn't really an angry young man. Yeah. But watching people like Strummer and Weller with the Jam, you suddenly start thinking, yeah, there is there's some there's a message here that. There's something going on in the, in the world other than my little bit of reality. Um, so I like that. I like the fact that these people had a real message, not just "baby, I love you." It was like there's a lot of yeah, a lot of serious things going on. So, so an actual live gig. Then, did you then, because Chris and I have spoken, and both of us sort of have very, you could call it spiritual. Definitely for me, spiritual and an emotional. Uh, attachments to live gigs and I always wanted to be in a band I knew it was never going to happen though I knew I just didn't have that kind of talent and so for me it just became an addiction I had to go to live gigs and there was something about the 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 visceral nature the feeling of being with a crowd just live songs literally it just made me buzz was that something was that something that you had or was it or did you just have something different going on Um, I had Everything it was to do was three hundred and sixty degrees of every emotion. <laughs> like inside here, everything changed. Yeah, yeah. You know, my, my career path changed instantly because I came out of that gig knowing that I wanted to get into music. Right. So I, I dropped out of art college within weeks. I was out of there, which was like that. That was a, a shock. The, the guy that was the, uh, I think it was called John Sprakes, the head of year. I remember going in to see him, saying, "Right, I didn't actually say I've seen seen the light." But it was pretty much that. Really? <laughs> I'm getting out. I'm just, you know, I'm going to get a job in the local steel factory where my mum and dad, we've got the corner shop, and then down the street's a big massive sheet metal factory. I'm going to get a job, get some money, um, and start getting around bands and learning about how bands work. And, and so did, did you then start going to gig after gig after gig? Was yeah. that the, the drug? Yeah, yeah, repetitive. Like, no matter to, what was on? Or? Um, yeah, just uh, if, it, if it was, if it was, a punk gig if it was a band that sounded they had a great name um, yeah. it was like probably three or four 
times a week we'd be going down to Manchester and for a kid like me being older at that point that was a big thing you know to be yeah. suddenly going off to this city which I'd never done before really I'm going watching these punk groups and little seedy underground clubs and I got battered by a teddy boy one night ironically <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean because I was yeah. and there was all this um, there was all this Ted's versus punk uh, friction yes like yeah. mods and rockers there was a, there was a lot of uh, this going on and one night I was walking through Piccadilly uh, Gardens after a gig waiting for the buzz or whatever and uh, I saw this teddy boy, he's probably 20 years older than me, big lad, no front teeth, with his, <laughs> with his girlfriend and maybe a couple of Ted's. And he called me over, Tommy, come here, because it's all rock on, Tommy. Remember oh, that? Oh, yeah, Cannon yeah, Ball, yeah, of yeah, course. Where it was all, Bobby Bowles always told me, I'm a punk rocker, Tommy. So, um, Tommy, come here. So I'm, I'm going to toddling over, naive as anything, thinking, I'm a teddy boy as well, because I love 50, 50s rock and roll music. Yeah. Walks over pulls his hand out of his pocket big knuckle dust he just <gasps> saw the, this brass flash boof on the top of my head here aye 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 squirting blood out Um I never told my mum and dad that in fact my mum's probably hearing this for the first time but yeah that was uh, Marie <laughs> we're sorry sorry you lied sorry yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah it was just uh, that was a bit of a lesson as well that was something that uh, I think wow. to this day I remember that moment thinking Sometimes don't put all your trust into just because they look like they look like you. But I like your waddy waddy. I know. So you 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 mentioned you mentioned Doctor Feelgood because we've we've had the conversation. What is what do we class as our first gig? What do you class as your first live gig? Is it Doctor Feelgood? I would say Doctor Feelgood. I've got a feeling it's seventy four, and then by seventy five, I would have been seeing Shuadi Okay. At least at least twice, maybe three yeah. times. Um and then what other bands before punk? Can't remember really who else I saw. Now let's let let's see if you are a geek like like Chris and I, we both, Clint, found out that we both have a scrapbook right. in which we've kept lots of our gig tickets from the yeah. past. And I mean, Chris's goes right up to to now, doesn't it? Yeah, I'm, well, I, I I keep all my stickers, my um, photography yeah. passes now because I most bands will give you that. Some bands will give you a ticket a as ticket, well, yeah. so you can yeah. stay in the gig, but. And, yes, and we compared we compared scrapbooks, although because of the current situation, Jesus mine's yeah, mine mine is currently in lockdown in my mother's attic, and so I can't get it. But my first gig ticket, earliest gig ticket, is a Michael Jackson Amazing. ticket. Ninety two. That, I mean, regardless of the controversy. Yeah, actually, yeah, exactly. It's quite a big musical. Oh, he was an amazing performer. He yeah. was at, he was incredible. As a, you know, musically and performer wise, he was. Yeah. Completely unique. He was amazing. Yeah. And then, Chris, your first one is Tommy Smith. Yeah, so it was a jazz jazz quartet because as a sax player, I got into right. into jazz really early. But then my first your first big arena one. gig was Clapton. Right. Yeah. At SECC. So, so Clint, the big question: Have you kept ticket stubs over the years? I've never ever thrown one away. I've still what? got them, but they're not filed. I couldn't. Yeah, <laughs> I couldn't get them out. So I've got. Um, They're not I've, saved, I've saved all my laminates. I'm a hoarder, man. I'm the biggest hoarder in the world. You know what really? I mean? Really? Yeah, I've, I've just. I have trouble separating myself from things. But the benefit of that is that 
I've got every vinyl record I ever bought, you know, including the Love first. It. You know, I've got I've got a record up there by Elvis that I bought fifty years ago. That is amazing. Yeah. It was seventy five P from Woolworths. Um, with a ticket, I can't see why you would throw that away. Yeah, it's I know what you mean. It's a piece of history, I, I, I isn't it? It's value, and I save it. But part of my problem is, I've moved a few times in my life. I've been divorced once. A lot of my stuff's still in storage in a, a container in Stockwood that I've not been to for like ten years. So right. it's like I've not got the best filing system in the world yet. But I've, I've still got every ticket stub ever. Uh, I know that for a fact. Um, yeah, and it's proper treasure, isn't it? So you've got a mishmash of tickets somewhere <laughs> or in multiple venues. Um, what do you reckon would be the first one? You've got, have you got the, the, the Dr. Feelgood one? I'm convinced I will have that. Yeah. yeah I, just because of really? the, that. Really? Yeah, the way I've always been. It's, uh, yeah, it'll be, like I said, I've always been a hoarder. I've got, when I went to that Electric Circus gig. Yeah. This is something I've got. I was realising it was such a special moment for me and that things were about to change. I thought I've got to get a souvenir of the night and I had no camera. I used to, I've always been into photography but I didn't have a camera with me that night. And I remember sitting on this little stool to the side of the room and it had a red plastic top, you know, the cushiony bit. Yeah. And there was a little hole in it. And I thought, I'm going to take it. And I ripped the, a chunk of the plastic off the stool, the red plastic. And I saved that as a souvenir of the I night. To... Still got that. Of <laughs> all... I've, of all the things, yeah. I was like, what's he done? <laughs> yeah. As he got oh, yeah, on the God. stage, as he got a set yeah. list, as he got, you, you know, one of Strummer's yeah. uh, something, yeah. uh, plectrums, or he's got plastic from the stool. I'll be honest, though, that, that anecdote... That's like the perfect anecdote, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, so Chris, yeah, my uh, musical live awakening was, I went to see The Clash, The Buzzcocks, The Pistols. <laughs> that's, that's literally a dream. I, I would, I'd have sold my nan to see The Clash live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I said, though, at the time, even though I knew it was a special moment, I didn't really think, I didn't see it as history changing or history being made. No. But in hindsight, it's one, it's one of those moments when I tell people I was at that gig, People, people's jaws drop. Yeah. It, wasn't, it wasn't the free yeah. trade. It wasn't the lesser free trade all gig that, that happened six months earlier or whatever. But I saw the pistols in Manchester in 1976. And, and I think it, I think it's about what it means to you. And you know, it's not, it's not like that gig. But when you know, when I was lucky enough to be at the early Mannix gigs, yeah, apart from just loving it because it was so crazy you know you knew that Richie's guitar didn't even have a lead so right. he wasn't even plugged in they were wearing blouses and as a Welshman we knew they were from the valleys and how they looked was different and it was such a raw sound and yeah. it was carnage sort of thing and but yet beautiful with all this glitter and feathers mm. everywhere mm. I knew I knew there was something happening mm. I didn't know whether it would be massive yeah. but you sort of didn't care because at that moment and those moments in time it was mine and inside that venue this is this is where I need to be, and this is my sort of uh, group of people. And this, this whatever this happening on the stage is yeah. just amazing. And yeah, you know the Manics. Let's be honest, they but that, that was, they, that, they, that, they did really well. And so <clears throat> I remember though having those gigs with certain bands as well, where yeah. I thought there is something happening here. There is, you know, whether it implodes, and it could have with the Manics. That's what they always said. They always yeah. said. You know, we'll send, we'll sell a million albums and then we'll just yeah. finish. But they, they were that generation's clash, and they were certainly that nation's clash, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. oh, and they in, were in every way. With the, even the political message, you know, the the fact that they 
they were bothered to get into stuff like well, that. Well, funny because they were sort of, even though they're massive fans of you, yeah. and and that we'd had rave, and then it we were flooded with Madchester, weren't we? Mm-hmm. And it was baggy everything, and you know if Nick and James were here, they and I think you know them, don't you? Clint? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, you know that they they love the Stone Roses, they love you lot, yeah. but yeah, they had the balls to come out in the in their blouses and their eyeliner yeah. and play punk rock yeah. when it should have been Hammond Organ like you and the Charlatans or, <laughs> well, or know, grooves absolutely. like the Happy yeah. Mondays. Because yeah. cer- certainly early doors, they were not afraid of being unpopular. You know, th- there was that, that moment, was it at Glastonbury where they, they were saying, you know, be happy if this whole place oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. was paved over yeah. or built yeah. all the way, <laughs> yeah. way through it. It was, it was brilliant. Okay. <laughs> anyway, you know I could talk about it forever, yeah, exactly. forever, but that was, that was good for me. So that is great. So it, Clint's first ticket stub, Dr. Feelgood. I mean, that, I think that's the coolest so far in it, let's be, yeah. let, let's be honest. It was in the days as well where I, I, probably, I probably got the programme as well. I would have probably bought the programme. programme, wow. Yeah. And I think the reason I like seeing Dr. Feelgood is... Programme. I'd seen them on... <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> were they on the old grey whistle test? I think I'd seen them on the TV. Yeah, must have been. De- de- definitely. I saw Wilco Johnson. Well, all of them. I mean, Lee Brio, the singer as well, just... I'd never seen musicians like that. I mean, yeah. Wilco was the first one. He, he yeah. was like, yeah, he, yeah, I'd never really seen a guitarist was. do that move. It was like Chuck Berry on, on acid and speed. And, yeah. And, mm. and, and and Lee Brio just looked like some thug from the local pub that was like, it's funny, I'm thinking about, G, I can picture Gene Hunt when I think about Lee Brio because such a, <laughs> yeah, and he had his sideburns and his floppy hair and that, but they were just an amazing band. They blew me away. I love that. So yeah, and you know, it was in the days when you'd go out and buy the seven-inch singles as they came out, you know, and mm. rock set and um, cigarettes and alcohol came later, didn't it? Yeah. Back, back in the night, back in the night. Oh, it's weird. It's so yeah. weird. It's on yeah. the 90s. Oh. Right, we're, we're going to take you into more of the quickfire round. Okay. So, what was the last gig you went to? you like this. <laughs> oh, God, God. Okay. <laughs> it was in February. We got invited to the Brits. What? Oh, Me and Charlie went to yeah, the Brits. Yeah. Right? Okay. Because of my red stripe connection. I know the guy that's... <laughs> my red stripe connection. Yeah. Literally, if we said, <laughs> if we'd introduced him today on the podcast, we've got red stripe's biggest... Yeah. <laughs> red everyone, stripe ambassador. Yeah, yeah oh, ambassador. Everyone would have gone, oh, it's Clint Bloom. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, I, I'm a friend of the brand, I think they call me. It's same, pretty green, same thing. Just a relationship that's developed and... Um, we, uh, yeah, Red Stripe, I've, I've been tweeting for years and years, but every time I'm off to South on a Saturday night, yeah, going to South, see down the hashtag yeah. Red Stripe. Yeah, I do, so, so funny. So it's become, my name's become, or the, the Red Stripe, hashtag Red Stripe, so we've become a bit synonymous with it. <laughs> so the guy that's in charge of um, marketing Red Stripe in the UK, yeah, got in touch with me, Matt Brilliant. Leggett, lovely bloke, we've become really good friends. Um, and they were one of the sponsors for this year, Brits. Not Red Stripe, but the, the, the brewery, the brewer that owns Red yes. Stripe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he said, look, got a couple of tickets for the Brits, if you fancy it. So I went down, me and Charlie went down. Um, and the bill, I mean, I can't remember what order, but we saw Harry Styles, who was brilliant, who we love. Oh, that, yes, this year. Yeah. When he was in like the, the crocheted yeah. white outfit, yeah. stood in water. It was a yeah. great performance. So we that. saw that. Really good. We saw Lizzo, who we love. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal. We saw Stormzy. Yeah, that we, was a great. We saw Dave. 
do that amazing thing at the piano. Oh my gosh. We, we were there, we were like, Oh I, I could have thrown my empty kind of red stripe at him from that. I was that close. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like I could have landed it right on top of his piano. We were that close to where he was. How? <laughs> I, I don't want to put words into your mouth. Go on. But how, how did that feel? Because that has actually become yeah, a I moment. Yeah. I'll tell you with, it felt, with Dave, yeah. I think Stormzy had been on at that point. I can't remember, but yeah. see, being in the same room as Stormzy, being... Oh yeah, he's, a, he's an icon, he's fucking brilliant, isn't he? Yeah. Mm. So that should have been the highlight, but I can't remember the Stormzy moment because of what Dave did. That Dave oh, thing was just like, like nothing I'd ever sat in a room and watched. And the beautiful thing was that graphic that was on top of the piano. Yeah. So you saw that really perfectly beautiful on the TV. It looked like that from where we were sat as well. It was exactly the same effect, I think, wherever you were looking down on okay, it. Okay, nice. I don't know how they did it. I don't know. Yes. I've not figured out how they did it yet. Yeah. Because it's 3D and it was dropping in. And it was, but just to, to sit, and both, me and Charlie sat there crying by the end of it. Like, yeah. What if we just seen there? Because you got so, swiped from the side, kind of, oh. Yeah. yeah. I didn't want anything about him. I'd heard this name, yeah. name Dave, and always yeah. laughed. How can rock and roll start called Dave? Or pop start called Dave? Yeah. And then suddenly we watched it, just, what just happened? You know, it's yeah. like, I, I sat and, and they laughed at me because that's the last time I saw my mum. It was half term and she'd come up to stay uh, with us and the kids. Yeah. And I was sat watching it and my mum was hilarious throughout the show. You know, yeah. why is Harry Styles standing in water? Why is it, you know, what's this? Lizzo hasn't got very much on, has she? You know, that whole thing. And the Dave thing happened and it was quiet. Yeah. It finished. And on it, and it, you know, this isn't... I genuinely felt emotional. I started clapping. Now, when I think about that now, yeah. I think that's so, that's so pathetic. I clap. I, I'm in my house. I started clapping. Yeah. And and I was just like, what? And even Grace, you know, my 14-year-old was just like, that that was unbelievable. Yeah. And my mum didn't have anything to say. Because like with Stormzy, again, she was like, oh, I don't get this. I don't get but this. But that's, that's because of the live aspect of it. You know, if that had been a music video, yeah, you wouldn't have had that same response, but yeah. because it was happening at the same time as you were watching it, you're right. You, you get that kind of you are oh, right. You know, that visceral um, experience, and yeah. and so, sometimes on well, sometimes only live music can do that. That's absolutely live. No, you you have you've nailed that because you, you mentioned Stormzy there, and. I'm very lucky that I, I work with the kids' fields at Glastonbury, and so I've been to Glastonbury every year for a long time. And um, when Stormzy headlined last year, mm. I knew that was a moment. And my, I like Stormzy, and I've, I've always liked grime. I'm trying to educate Chris on a bit of grime. Mm. And, um, I like a bit of Skepta. Like a bit of Skepta. That's it. And he's getting there. <laughs> and um, and, and <clears throat> the kids were like, are we going to go and see Stormzy? So I was like, yeah, we're going to go. And from... The opening 10, 20 seconds, yeah. he came on and headlined that stage. Oh my gosh. And I, t I tweeted that. I just went, I'm witnessing a moment. And I put, this is already one of the most momentous headline acts yeah. I've ever seen. Yeah. And, and predictably, I got a load of replies <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah. Generally, from, from people of my physical ilk white middle-aged men going ah oh, well you didn't and they just started reeling off indie bands oh what you're saying it's better than Radiohead you're saying this better than Pulp you say 
And I went, no, 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 I just said I'm witnessing a really momentous occasion. And it was. It's one of the greatest headline performances I've seen of any festival. And there is something, like you say, Chris, in that moment, you just feel, oh my gosh, the power. Yeah. And so I'm I'm jealous of you being at the Brits there. That, you know that ended must have been amazing. Let's get to the, the last bit. Can you remember how the show ended? The at Brits. the Brits? Yeah. How did it end? The, the big name that came on right at the end. <clears throat> oh, Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart, yeah. Rod Stewart. So Rod Stewart comes out. Yes, right? Rod and he does. Stewart. It was like, because in the room, it was going to be, that, that was going to be the big, big finale. Mm. I, I, and it, he came it, on. <laughs> and what did he start his set with? Um... I didn't know what time it was. You're in my heart, you're in my... It's like, fucking... I could start with something with ballads. Yeah. I'm not kidding. He lost, he lost the room. He lost the room. He should have yeah. done that. He had to stay with me or something. And Maggie May, but he started with that. And he lost the room. People got up and started leaving. I bet I... Oh, poor we, Rod. We sat, around, yeah. we, we sat around, you know, pay respects now. We stayed for a bit longer, but... It was just so the last artist I saw live was Roger Stewart. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, uh, yeah, I think. I think that, this, that, that was the last moment. Yeah, right, we're going to stop it there because this is this is supposedly the quick fire round. Yeah, and yeah, I knew yeah, go going on. forward, it would well, never be quick fire round. Right, I'll, right. Try, I'll try and be more quick on the next one. the loudest gigs what's the loudest gig you've ever been to oasis in the in the early days yeah was, was out of control noise it was um really yeah because we were going obviously we had the connection with noel we were still even though noel wasn't working for us and he'd started his band we were still going to see oasis gigs mm-hmm. and our paths were crossing at other gigs i think there was one where's tram lines is that sheffield yes I think it was Sheffield, but I've got a, it might have been a Scottish gig. But we went seeing, I think we we're on the same bill as Oasis. And we went into the room to watch him play. And it was when Mark Coyle, um, who had been our, he was our monitor man when we were on tour. Um, and Noel and him had become best friends. So when Noel started with Oasis, Mark went along and became their sound man. And he was, uh, he is deaf, he's as far as mainly deaf at the moment. But um, oh, it was him. like, I remember watching them just thinking, Painfully loud that. That's really? when it when it hurts you a bit. It was yeah. exciting. Yeah. You know, it's great seeing your mates smashing it like that, but it, it was it felt painfully loud. Loud. You know, well, um I think we might come back to Oasis later on. Yeah, we will. And Motorhead, I saw Motorhead at Leeds, um Oh the round oh not the Roundhouse, what's it called in Leeds? The round the it's an old engine shed, is it called the Roundhouse? Yeah, maybe it is an old engine shed, isn't it? Oh, I can't remember. I think yeah, they, they it they, wasn't it was an old circular uh, train building, but I, I don't know what it's called. But anyway, I saw Motorhead there, and that was they're, no, they're notoriously yeah, loud, aren't they? Loud, yeah. even, even when they played the main stage at Glastonbury, you know, maybe a year or two before he died, yeah, they were on sort of early afternoon. And you know what it's like the later bands get the best sound, yeah. Oh man, yeah. we were in the kids' field, and I could hear every word of, of Lemmy there. My, uh, my old chemistry teacher used to play guitar in Motorhead, oh, really? Yeah, b- before Lemmy joined. Wow. No way. Yeah. Is he is he on Wiki? I don't know. I don't know. I love that you dropped that in. I know. That's a, that's a good one. I like that. Alan I like that. Weiss. Alan Weiss. Phenomenal guitarist. But right. yeah, I think um, it, it didn't work that's out brilliant. for him. And then he went what, into what chemistry. Chemistry. Right. Chemistry. Because there's, there's an Alan Weiss involved with Factory Records, but that's not the same guy, is it? No. 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 
Okay. I would have spent more time with him. I think. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this is a really, it could be a really blah, vague one, but favourite gig. And, and it can be as a punter or as, you know, on a, a performer. Is there a moment where you just thought, that was my favourite gig ever? Is there one that you put to that? Um, Lords. How do you pick your favourite one? Um, as a punter, probably R.E.M. at Glastonbury, 2000 and 2000, wasn't it? 2003. Oh, was it three? Okay. So it's a year... Is it, was it? I'm I, talking about it. I think time. it might have been 2000. Did they, have they done it twice? I think so, yeah. And I've got a feeling it's 2003. Okay. What is it now? 20? Yeah, it, 2003. Hazy. So but... it was... Not only was it a magic moment because I'd met them in the afternoon when they arrived on site. I'm a massive R.E.M. fan. Mm. So I met them in the afternoon when they arrived on site because our porter cabin was in the same enclosure as theirs. So I got to meet them. And then... Hang on. There's a famous photograph. Yeah. Mr. Photographer Chris here. In the, enemy, in the enemy. Yeah. The lightsabers. Lightsabers. Yeah. Who, yeah. who was in that picture? Uh, Georgia Gill. So this isn't a quick fire on this, is it? But no, so, no, no. So me and Craig... Massive REM fans, and um, and that's Craig, um, the beautiful drummer from yeah, the Inspiral Carpets. Sadly, no longer with us. But um, so we we figured out. To be honest, we went down there, and I didn't realise we we're on the same stage on the same day as REM. I knew they were playing over the weekend, <laughs> but when it dawned on us after because we played sometime in the afternoon, we were like early doors, uh, but on the pyramid stage. When it dawned on us that REM are probably going to arrive in this paddock later on, and one of these cabins will be theirs so let's stick around as long as we can and hopefully we'll get to meet them because a lot of these festivals you get moved on once you've done your gig you get moved out you can't oh really do you because okay. it's like echo and the bunny men need it now so you're going to have to get out <laughs> so, um, so, you, so you've got lots of tea and coffee just to make sure that you were going to be able to speak to them in a, yeah. a, a really composed you know, manner yeah? you know what actually happened we, well, got, I do, <laughs> story we got battered we got uh, battered uh, and it was, I think it was like dusk it was coming to dusk hashtag red stripes so it was me and Craig I can't remember I, I don't think the rest of the band were there I think they might have left and gone back up north or or back to your hotel and we are there <laughs> me Craig little Georgia and, and that's, she, that's Craig's daughter, daughter yeah. yeah she was like three or four at the time right and she got some lightsabers I think they bought these lightsabers on site to mm. keep her occupied and she's like playing with everybody doing that Peter Buck and Mike Mills arrived in the paddock and me and Craig spotted them so we went over and started talking to them and they were being really nice. We, we were just really fucking jibbering. I thought, I'm a big fan. Oh, that's great. And then, oh, my and then, So they're there with the, in conversation. So then Michael Stipe arrived. And what does he do? He comes right over to us because he can see his mates yeah. out of the band. And, you know, us likes it. He didn't know who we, we were at the time. But he comes over and me and Craig, oh, fuck Michael Stipe's come over. Let's <laughs> introduce ourselves. So Craig is such an R.E.M. fan that Georgia is named Georgia because that's where they're from. Where they're from. So that was what he wanted to say. Amazing. And what came out was... Because <laughs> it, it wasn't just drinking juice, this, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm there like... Oh, And then all afternoon I'd be doing this thing with um, <coughs> to keep Georgia occupied, or to keep her entertained. I was throwing sweets up and catching them in my mouth and peanuts. 
So she's, uh, I'm trying to talk to Michael Stipe, trying to sound, you know. Human. Human. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and she just says, Clint, Clint, Clint. Show him, show him that trick you've been doing all day. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, something I start throwing these fucking uh, toffees up, sweets, peanuts, whatever, and I can't do it. <laughs> and they're bouncing, bouncing all over the place. I swear, one bounced off his, Michael Stipe's shoulder or his head. I was setting into it was his head, but it bounced off him, and it was just like I could see all this in slow motion, thinking you absolute twat. <laughs> you, oh, you like. Um, <sighs> I've got a feeling he'll remember that moment because I, I know that when we had The Beast Inside out, our second album, he mentioned us in an interview, Stipe, and I think it was like American Playboy or something like that. Brilliant. That, that was one of his favourite albums or something he was listening to at the time. So he, he'll probably remember that moment because we would have said, and, um, and then seeing us in such a mess, I bet he'll remember it. Do you know what I would love? I would love to ask Michael Stipe about the moment he met Clint Boone from the Spark Habits. I would love to well, hear we've, we've his side of the anecdote. Week. We've got him on yeah, next week. Yeah, that would be. Yeah, yeah that was. Uh, I think, but that, that that gig that night, and it ended up we didn't see a lot of it because the gig started, and I was in awe. My favourite band ever. Then I'd met him in the afternoon, and Charlie was here, and um, and some lads behind me started. We weren't too near the front. We weren't in the mosh pit, but they started getting a bit rowdy and banging into me repeatedly yeah and I don't think they knew who it was they weren't doing it deliberately they were just being rock and roll animals and, mm. and I, I turned around and did the old um, Charlie always calls it me Rob Gretton moment you know in the 24 hour party people where he jumps off the balcony the oh yes yeah. I, I turned into Rob Gretton angry, and, and she had to pull me away from these guys so it sort of put a bit of a a bit of a dampener on my experience of the gig but <laughs> it was just it, it just a, a beautiful day for me as a an REM fan it's a beautiful day in my diary you know very quickly because it it would be daft to not ask this as well what just tell us what is your favourite gig as a performer Um it's an easy one to go for it's headline in Reading in 1990 August 1990 so yeah, we'd, yeah. we'd already we'd done GMX in Manchester which was 11,000 people in our own town. Yeah. Which was huge. We'd done Top of the Pops a few times at this point as well. How, do, then, how does that feel? Do you, I know... Doing what? That sounds so vague. How does that feel when you're at home and you walk out to 11,000 people? Uh, it was... That, it was... Yeah, a special moment, that. I, having grown up, you know, watching Top of the Pops and wanting to be somehow involved with music and then you know in, I mean I was 25 at the time I think by the time I did Top of the Pops 25 no I was 30 I was 25 and I joined the Inspiral so what I'm saying is I think I'd probably gone through a few years I think I probably missed out on everything here yeah yeah. I'm in this little garage band but you know it's alright we'll see where it goes by 1990 we're doing Top of the Pops I just turned 30 so Top then, of the Pops must be a bit of an odd one just because because of the nature of the show you've got all these wildly different genres getting smashed yeah, together yeah. and <laughs> I mean, can you remember who was on when you were yeah it, I mean like I said it was always it could be quite peculiar couldn't yeah. it but I think the night the first night we did it it, it had a bit of cohesion to it from what I can remember because Primal Scream were on the same night and you lauded mm. yeah um, they for some reason had Mark Gardner out of Ride playing keyboards on miming keyboards Brilliant. I don't know. Were they on Creation, right? Yeah, yeah Creation. So um, and then, the, every time we did Tubs and Pops round about then, there would always be one of the, the dance acts, like the crossover dance, so Snap, um, Utah Saints, the Power. 
I don't, I don't think he actually did it with Utah Saints, but I'm still in touch with Jez. He's a mate of mine. Right. So, oh, well. so, talking to him the other day. Um, uh, D Light were on one. Uh, who was that that did the, the party time, the party line? There was always some of these dancey yeah, rave yeah. types on there as well. Um, but, but yeah, it's, it was, doing Tom the Pops was great because I'd, I'd grown up watching it and it was brilliant to be on it, but a very weird day. You know what I mean? Mm. But walking out on stage to do GMEX, that was like, yeah. I think everything you want to experience as a, a kid getting into a band, you know, why, why do you join a band? It's not to sit around all day at Top of the Pops and take no. the piss out of each other. Did you swap have to, did instruments you have, as well? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and deliberately not mind the right words. Yeah. Did you have to stop yourself from getting carried away? Because yeah. you think in that moment, it's home, they're all right behind you. I bet the adrenaline must have been coursing. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you what happens. Is by that point, we'd done four years of gigs where you learn to be very cool. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? You, you learn to be... Even yeah. though inside you, ah, no, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Look at me, look at me. Yeah, that's yeah. what I want you to say. Yeah. That is exactly yeah. what I wanted yeah. you, you to admit to me. You just, just walk out and say, "All right, motherfuckers." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is the uh, Saturn Five. You know what I mean? But, oh, inside, but inside you are like, oh, yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Yeah. That's what I want. Boot army. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Oh, but that's um, oh, that's that's, well, that's it. That's, and I still get that that giddiness. I get it. Like walking out on stage to. Do a DJ set before the Clone Roses, you know, and everybody yeah. they know that because I always do it. It's a tradition. I've been doing that for 21, 22 years. Yeah, yeah. With the Clones, it's become even though it's only a tribute band, it's a big thing for me and it's a big thing for their audience that you know I come out and do an hours with whatever. And I, I still get that when I walk out, and I still feel that now. You know, like goosebumps. <laughs> I did a DJ set opening up for Happy Mondays once at the, I think that was GMAX, Manchester Central. That was a nice moment for me. Yeah, I walked out on stage, like, it was a big, big sellout gig. It's only probably 10 years ago, eight, eight nine, ten years ago. And then um, I just started my set with uh, Skinhead Moonstomp by Simmerit. Brilliant. I want all you skinheads to get on your feet. Put your braces together and your boots on your feet. And it just, I think people were like, at the beginning, because it, it wasn't an instantly recognisable tune for most of the audience, but no. once it kicks in, and it, you could just see yeah, it, they weren't were expecting yeah. that, and I've fucking smashed it. So it's, um, <laughs> I love that. But yeah, so I, I, still, I still get those absolutely, those absolute moments of giddiness, but I just don't show it. Good. Not and as much as I love Complete that. opposite to that then, we're still in the quick fire round. Yeah, yeah. 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 very quick fire. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm the third quick fire question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, worst ever gig? as a musician yeah, yeah. we've done a few bad ones over the years and it's usually to do with tiredness boredom and alcohol mm-hmm. you know in my humble opinion and I think the last time we did Kendall Carlin in Spirals I think we weren't on form we were it was at the end of a, a run of gigs I think so mm-hmm. we you know notoriously or famously by the end of the tour you're getting you, you know you're worn out you've not yeah. been looking after yourself you've been drinking too much you bit bored and I think we arrived at Kendall Calling in that state we yeah were, we were, you know some of us were battered under the weather and um, yeah from what I think some of it's on YouTube and it's every time I watch it I cringe a little bit and it's me it's, it's me as much as any of them are playing their own notes and singing out a tune and <laughs> can, it, can it also have something to do with uh, I'm not saying about Kendall Calling but you know I've heard um, everything everything talk about how at one point they supported was it Simple Minds mm. Wow. And it just wasn't their crowd. 
right, and, yeah, yeah. and just went down like a lead balloon. Yeah. And uh, have you had those support gigs where you've, it's just not your crowd. Yeah, it's never, years, you're never going to get them. But the funny thing with that is that again, through experience, we, we, we clock it when it's happening. And you know it's not, you, you realise that, but yeah. the blessing is, or the good thing is, you, you've got your mates here with you on stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you come off stage, you, you, you have the laugh about it. That yeah. Was, that was shit, wasn't it? That was one of the minutes. Why are we here? Why are we here? That so, must be tough, that. That must be tough. It doesn't happen a lot, though. It doesn't happen a lot. Yeah. Um, I think the thing is, it's like, you know, any, whoever you are, whatever your band's called, whatever kind of music you're doing, you believe in you. you, you yeah. You, you've created these songs you're happy with it, you know, it's, your wife likes it, mum and dad like it, brother and sister like it. If you're suddenly putting a room full of people that are more into reggae, then it's not really your fault and don't let it damage your own confidence, your own self-belief, you know. Um, so yeah, we have, I think over the years we've been in that position, but I think we just learned to laugh it off at an early stage. Yeah, it. Sticking with uh, live gigs, obviously, but going back to Oasis, we've had a look and in fact, you... You take over, Chris, because you mentioned this, and you you mentioned this first. Well, no, this I, week. So I was obviously I was um, not as early with Oasis as folk who were in Manchester, and, but I did start to see them in '94. And the first gig I went to was in December 1994, December yeah. the seventh. This week, twenty six years 26 ago. Twenty six years ago, and after three songs, Liam stormed off, and he. I think he just went out into the streets of Glasgow and I don't think he came back and it was the first time that that Noel had played acoustically on stage. Right, yeah. Because he had to and he was he must have shot a brick going, what the, what do we do? We've got an entire, you know, two 2000 odd Barrowlands crowd yeah. wanting to hear Oasis. And um but I remember there was a massive scramble for tickets during the gig because Noel said right we've spoken we've booked another date we're going to come back on the 27th of December and everyone was on the hands and knees scrabbling around trying to find the tickets oh, that right, they yeah. dropped Yeah, um, but we we came back <laughs> that again. wouldn't have happened with you two no, would it no, wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't no, have happened no. with you two <laughs> no, no, I, I was fine um, <laughs> but they came back on the 27th of December and whatever had just gone in at number three and I remember just feeling as Christmassy as I've ever felt I'd just left home I'd gone to Glasgow and I was Ah, oh, and Oasis were my band because they weren't massive at that point. I mean, they were mm. Barrowlands. It's a decent sized venue, but it's not Nebworth. Do you know what I mean? This, in in hindsight, this tour that was, I think it covered two weeks. Yeah. Um, you know, twenty six years ago, this was this was the tour. This was the tour that most people speak about because they then came they then came back around the UK. Uh, in '95, and it was arena tours. It was, yeah. I mean, because in Cardiff was, it was the Astoria, and I could not get in. I could not get. A yeah, I mean, '95. The they were in. They were back in Scotland, and they did Irvine Beach, and then they did um, Loch Lomond. Yeah, I think the following year, actually, that may have been '96. But yeah, that's right. That that '94 tour, I wish I, I I was not on, but I absolutely was aware because I was trying to get tickets for it in the Astoria. But in I remember, I, I I was absolutely blown away by. Everything about them, everything about them, yeah. the, the, the the vibe and I mean, what do you remember about the early early times that you saw Oasis apart from them being loud, watering the vibe? <laughs> yeah, um, when I first saw them, it'd be at the boardwalk, um, probably without without Noel before Noel joined. All oh, right, okay. When they would have played as the rain, and then the next thing 
Noel had joined the band, so we went to his, see his first gig at the yeah. boardwalk. So at that point, they weren't dead loud, they were, they were noisy, you know, a lot of distorted guitar. When Noel joined them, was he still actively working with you guys? Because yeah. I'm sure everyone knows this, but he was... Um, well, he wasn't actually a roadie for you, was he? He was like a he was like a runner, wasn't it was, he? It was, it, was, it was a PA as much as anything else. It was like with us all day, every day, he'd be with us in the rehearsal room. If we were in our office, he'd be there helping out, sending merchandise out, answering fan mail if he couldn't be asked doing it. He'd write back to the fans and all that. So he was very much... Um, he was with us all the time. And if, if, any meetings we went to, we'd always give him the option to come with us. So if we were going meeting... Simon Moran about gigs or go meeting a you know an accountant or a publisher more often than not we'd take him with us just because and did he did he ask you about it when he was looking to join Oasis was he like looking for advice from any of you lot or was he not just really. his own he was absorbing it as we were absorbing it as we, as we were because we were learning you know when, when Noel joined our gang um, which was at the end of 88 he auditioned to be our singer Stephen had left the band mm-hmm. Noel auditioned to be the singer how, how have I missed that <laughs> How did I not know that? Yes, yeah, I mean. I so when Stephen left, he auditioned. He was the first person that came to audition. And then was it Tom? Yeah. But well, what happened was <clears throat> Stephen left. So towards the end of '88, Stephen left. I won't go into why, but it was to do with personal reasons as much as anything. Um, Noel was a fan, and we knew him. He'd been coming to a lot of our gigs. This is when we were playing pubs and smaller, you know, smaller venues. Yeah. And he heard that. Our singer was left and we were having to find somebody else. And he was the first person that put his head up and said, I want to, have a go, I want to audition. Because we all thought it was really funny because we knew him as this little lad that worked for Gasboard, <laughs> who'd spent most of that year in a, a leg <laughs> cask. He broke his foot at work somewhere. Um, and I was like, what? Noel wants to audition. So get him in, let's do it. So we got him in. He auditioned to be the singer. He did a full, probably a couple of hours with us, you know, like going through songs and singing and. Um, and then we decided, I think the day after we all spoke on the phone, saying, we don't think his voice suits what we are doing. Yeah. He was, he was a singer. He was writing songs at that point. We, you know, mm. he, was play, he was giving us cassettes of songs that he'd done on his four track back then. And he, he just, we all liked him. And we just said, why don't you come work for us? Because we, we were at a point where, you know, we were just realising that we needed a bit of help. We had a manager, I think. We had a manager, Anthony. But we needed a bit of extra help. We needed somebody that could set our gear up when we were doing gigs but somebody that could help us around the rehearsal room through the day, nip into Manchester, get some strings from Johnny Roadhouse or whatever. Mm. So we um, we took him on and put him on a wage right away. What happened next? We had one other audition. I think John Matthews, who was in the high. Oh, yeah. I think he auditioned. I don't think he'd been in the high at that point. Uh, no, that happened a bit later. But anyway, so John Matthews auditioned. Again, lovely voice, but just not what we wanted. Because Tom, sorry, Stephen, who'd left the band, had a big voice. Yeah. And, it wasn't as operatic as Tom's, mm. Tom Ingley, who eventually joined us, but it was a big set of lungs. Yeah. And we wanted to carry that on, because otherwise I could have sung, because I can sing, but I'm not that big belty out sort yeah. of singer I wasn't then, yeah. I don't know now. So anyway, we auditioned uh, Noel, took him on as a roadie, auditioned John, passed on that one. Um, there's a rumour that Tim Burgess auditioned as well, but he didn't actually do it in the room, whether he... That's taping or something. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know where that rumor came from. I've never actually asked him about that, but there, there is. A, I've seen it said that he, he auditioned as well, which he, he didn't do. But um, right, well, I'm going to follow that up. Yeah, ask him. I'm going to follow that up. Or does he know where the rumor comes from? So yeah, yeah. So and ultimately, so so at the same time, we, we're doing these little gigs, and um, we'd put out our first single, which was playing Crash EP, keep the circle around. We're on Playtime Records, 
And yeah. also on Playtime, there's this band called Too Much Texas. And Tom was their singer. And I'd heard a record called Jane that they'd done, that John Peel had played. And it was beautiful. Yeah. Like real old croony sort of 50s. Oh, Jane, you woo eyes. Like this sort of thing. They're a big, massive chorus. And we did some gigs with him. That we're on the same bill with the Too Much Texas. So we, we, we bumped into him, saw him singing live. And it was just like, I can't remember who made I, I, I seem to remember, I think I might have phoned Graham up and said, what about Tom from Too Much Texas? His voice would sound amazing. Mm. Anyway, so we um, we got in touch with him and he said, yeah, I'm going to come and audition, but I want to tell my band first. Just, you know, rather than doing it sneakily. Yeah, yeah. So, you yeah. know, to his credit, he went and spoke to the band Too Much Texas. He said, I'm going to follow this audition. Because I think at that point, it was looking a bit like we were going to do something. So it was probably worth, he, he thought it was worth yeah. risking. Mm. So, so he auditioned and he just smashed it and that was it. He just said, right, that's it, let's do it, get him in. Yeah. Sort your hair out, he said. <laughs> sort your hair out, because he had his hair slicked back. He used to wear his hair slicked back at that point. And he did the audition with his hair back. And we said, I think we said to him as, as bluntly as, sort your hair out and you're in. Fringe, get fringe. <laughs> the, the, the irony of that, coming from Clint Boone, because I mean, that, <laughs> the Inspirals had the best hairdo, surely, in, in music. Well, quickly, quickly, just going back then, you then had this lad, Noel. When was it, or, or did you not even think it, when was it that you saw Oasis and thought, this band are going to do it? This, they're absolutely something here. Was there uh, something about it was, live? Was that a gig? You know, I don't, I don't know if it was a gig where I thought that. It was probably just watching the, the news unfold and hearing the records coming out and seeing the reaction. And, you know, so I don't think it was a particular gig. Did I, it? Did it feel because I I can't sort of make it, I can't lie I didn't see them then you know the first time I saw them live was mm. was the arena so they'd already mm. gone through this tour that we're talking about now you know in ninety four yeah was this something different when you saw them live w- were you thinking yeah they I can I can feel like I saw the Strokes in a tiny venue in in Cardiff right and even though I wasn't a massive Strokes fan I could feel I was like. There's something going off here. Yeah, you there's something it. going off. Yeah, w- yeah. Did that apply? Did you think there's something different here? Definitely not. Not not because of the gig though. But it was it was more seeing how. Sorry, I'm trying to change my seat and position it. <laughs> For those uh, listening, we, we, two of us are sat on the floor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. on the floor, and I'm but, reclining on a chaise lounge. Yeah. Um, it was seeing because you know, like put this into perspective. So. The Inspirals took a break. Well, we split up in um, spring of '95. Yeah, we had no record deal, and it was at a time when to operate a band like the Inspirals at any level, you had to have the support of a, a record company. Mm. You know, there, there was no such thing as crowdfunding back then. Mm. I think Marillion invented that the, the year after. Wow! So we were just like we, we had no financial support all of a sudden. Manchester as far as anybody knew, was over. Yeah. Britpop hadn't been named Britpop yet, I don't think. So we, we were just like, we just thought, it's probably a good time to knock it on the head, really. I, I had other ideas in my head about things I wouldn't mind trying to do, because we, we'd done nothing but the Inspirals for like 10 years, pretty much. That's yeah. all we'd done. Yeah. And I was thinking about, you know, other things I'd like to have a go at. Um, and we, it was a very amicable split. And at the time, none of us... We didn't really talk about we'll get back together in a few years' time. We stayed in touch. We were still friends, but there was just no real talk about the band's future. It was just, you know, by it, it was over. You know, just, yeah. So, I, and at that point, I'm living in Rochdale. My second child had just been born, Max, baby Max at the time. Um, no income. No, you know, I wasn't sat on loads of money because the Inspirals hadn't sold shitloads of records for a couple of years. So, mm-hmm. 
no big financial cushion and, and times are hard you know it's like I just entered a, a bit of a, a dark patch in terms of not having much money to play with not having a record deal having a lot of uh, ambition for other things I wanted to work on but while so while I'm there sat on my arse in Milnrow I'm seeing the front page of the newspapers and suddenly my mate you know every day yeah. you know yeah. he's, he fell out with his brother so you know his brother's nutted somebody his brother's spat on stage in America and this is happening and so you're seeing the, the effect it's having on the um, British pop culture you're seeing the fact that people, the masses are buying into that lifestyle that they thought the Oasis lads had. Because mm. that's always a big thing with bands, isn't it? That Going back to the Beatles, a lot of the fans like to think that they live together. You know, like the monkeys. <laughs> yes. They go shopping together. They'll go try training shoes on together all at the same time. And, and the Oasis completely smashed that vibe where yeah. You bought. You didn't just buy the, the definitely maybe album. You were buying into that lifestyle, and you know mm. within that lifestyle was the way to dress, the way to talk, the way you walk, the way you act. It was like it's complete, wasn't it? It's a complete um, thing that created, and it was phenomenal. And you know I was watching it very much as an outsider at that point. So I realised yeah, that this was a moment in history, and you know it, it was as powerful a moment as the Sex Pistols were to the nation. Man. And, um, you know, as powerful as the rave moment had been. Yeah. Um, it, so, yeah, it was incredible to watch it. And, you know, to this day, I'm sort of... I always sound so glad that I was a little part of that story. Yeah. And it was so quick. It just seemed so quick, didn't it? It yeah, seemed right. like... I saw them in the arena, and then next thing I know, I, I went to Nebworth. Right. And I'm, I'm stood at Nebworth, and I'm just like... I knew that this was massive yeah, yeah. just because there was, yeah. I mean, 100,000 people stood around me and I'm like, this this is huge. Yeah. And for me, that was sort of the pinnacle. I, yeah, I remember yeah. hearing them just <clears throat> before What's the Story, Morning Glory had come out, and but they were, they were playing tunes from the album and mm. we didn't know what they were at that point. Yeah. And oh, what is this? You know, hearing yeah. Champagne Supernova played live before you, you, you know, you haven't heard it. Yeah. 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 For, for me, they are... They, they, and I'll, oh, I say this a lot, but they are one of the bands that I prefer listening to live than on record. Um, I, I loved how they sounded, mm. and for me, I prefer Liam in the earlier days around that okay. with his voice. Then, yeah, yeah I mean, I um, tailed off after the second album. I kind yeah. of fell out of love a little bit, and I, I don't think I saw him again after after Loch Lomond. Um, I think when they had White on drums. That was musically, it sounded so different. Life, they sounded yeah. great. Actually, actually, there is a moment I sort of feel bad, but they—I don't know what he was thinking—but they brought on John Squire for oh, Champagne okay. Supernova, right. and it was so funny because we know that Noel—he's he's not a Jimi Hendrix, but the sound—I mean, I was just in awe because right. Squire came on and just. It was just amazing. Oh, Champagne Supernova, yeah, and the sound was just like. Yeah. This is ridiculous. You, yeah, you need right. to have John Squire in your band all the time. <laughs> it was so, it was so brilliant. It was brilliant, and and I've this sort of brings us into we're going to close the 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 podcast now. But this a, little, a little Oasis anecdote that I've not really spoke much about that would be nice on here. Oh no, we don't want to hear that. It's like <laughs> a, a full circle thing was that the last the last record that no uh, that Oasis made. Um, the Shock of the Lightning was a single. What was the last album called? I can't remember. But anyway, so Shock of the Lightning, 
features my actual Farfisa organ. So the actual Does organ, it? it's got, I didn't play it, oh. but I got a message from from, from uh, Ignition saying, Noel says, can you borrow your organ for this this album? No um, way. So it's Noel's roadie came up from London in his Range Rover. I put the organ, the Farfisa organ that... That's that a Noel, heavy thing, isn't it? It's, it's, it's compact. It fits in the boot of a car. Oh, does it? Okay. Yeah, that's why it's called a compact duo. It was the right, okay. it was the Italian answer to... Because Hammond organs were too big to carry about. Yeah. So Farfisa designed this portable that fitted in the boot of the car. So the legs fold up inside it and then you put it in the boot. Oh, okay. Anyway, so, um, so yeah, yeah I think it's called Jason, his road. He came up, got the Farfisa, took it down to whichever studio they were recording at. Mm. Um, and then eventually brought it back a couple of weeks after. And when the album came out, well, the single shock of the lightning, it's the organs all the way through it. Brilliant. It's just two chords all the way through it. And it's just like the fact that that's the same uh, instrument that Noel used to set up for me. Set up at for the you. the 80s. You know, ah, it was like that, I love that. And I love that circle, the fact that that, re- that album, sorry, that album, that organ that played on Saturn V, List Out Fields, White No Sugar, all that stuff, actually featured on the last music that Oasis recorded. So I'm just that. showing you just now. I posted this on Twitter. Is that the organ? Because uh, that is that is you. I realised that six years ago, I photographed in spirals at yeah. the Ritz, and it was a ridiculous night because they were you were on at quarter past eight, I think, at the Ritz. Right. And I was I had to go f- photograph your first. I think I only managed to photographed the first two because Madness were on at the MEN Arena oh right okay at 10 to 9 and so I had to I had literally run to the the tube uh, the the tram get the tram to Victoria (laughs) run to the uh, the arena so uh, I'll tell you what that is so that's six years ago is it yeah, twenty four. Yeah, that's not actually the original organ that's like my MIDI setup that I've got so I've got a a MIDI setup of three or four keyboards that looks it's made to look like the old Farfisa. Yeah. So that's, oh, right. So it's made to look like Yeah, it. but it means that um, rather than having to set up, because the old, if I set up the, the equipment that I used to use up until the, well, the, the mid-90s, I did, when we, when we reformed in 2003, I dug out all the old gear and used it for a while, but it's, yes. it takes like two hours to set it up. Yeah. Of, of you know, setting the machines up, putting the wires in everywhere because you're talking about a 1960s electric organ from Italy a 1980s uh, digital workstation from America and then Sonic uh, you, and then you've got like these Akai samples a lot of stuff that's like, obsolete Clint is what you're telling me you've cheated me these past years uh, just the last few years yeah but I'm still got can to... I have my ticket money back I'm a hoarder so I've still got all the machines that I ever used and a lot of it is obsolete but absolute treasure and occasionally it comes in handy because I'll end up digging something out or stumbling across something I didn't realise they had and um oh but that's like the end of the Wizard of Oz (laughs) I love love that well we 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 need to wrap it up and we we're finishing with by talking about uh live albums because Chris and I we don't just love going to gigs but we also have a joint love, you know, real joint love of live albums and right. listening to um, recorded live music. And um, in the first episode, I we finished. Uh, I recommended one of uh, Jeff Buckley's live albums, which is a compilation of of tracks from ninety five to ninety six. Is there a live album that you've 
you've really grown attached to or that you've carried through you know your your years of music i recently got the the johnny cash um is it Folsom Prison, San Quentin? Yes, the one, yeah. Got that live album, but only in recent years because I started buying a lot of vinyl again. To be honest, I've never been... I've always preferred studio recordings over... Really? Yeah. Uh, oh, the other live one is... Bruce Springsteen did one recently in his, um, his shed at home, whatever it is. It's, yes! He's got a big... Um, but they've got like a barn. And I got his album, and it's him live with, I just assume, a very small audience in his, his farm, barn, whatever. And that's incredible to say it's live. You know what I mean? Live... Probably yeah. still multi-tracked and tied it up a bit. Um, if you, you could, if you could choose, if we finish this now, you have to choose one track by one artist, and it's performed live for us to go away and listen to. What would it be? If you dig out REM doing the MTV Unplugged, mm-hmm. and they did a cover of the Trogs, "Love Is All Around," the one that Wet 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 did, yeah, and that is. I've not got the record of it, but we watch on YouTube loads, and it's um, it's it's making me tingle. I was thinking about it. Michael Stipe doesn't do the lead vocal on it. Mike Mills sings the lead. Oh right, okay. And Michael Stipe does his backing vocal. It's just absolutely from heaven. It so, would be nice to refresh that because there are a few beautiful songs that then got covered, you know, in a different way. Yeah. yeah, I will always love you. For example, yeah. hearing yeah. Dolly Parton saying that is heartbreaking. But yeah. with Whitney Houston, it's not such a pleasure to listen to. I see. Oh I, right, I would, okay, I interesting. Yeah. Um, and similarly with Wet Wet yeah, Wet and the yeah. Trogs, because I love the Trogs. Yeah, that would be a nice little refresher. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. It's just, uh, and I've seen them do other things like like other. I end up going down REM rabbit holes on YouTube a lot, mate. At night, when I've had a drink and everybody's gone to bed, and it's just like right, let's get some. See, I can find some stipe that I've never witnessed, and yeah. um, but the REM stuff, uh, and I've seen a few live things on YouTube where they just stood around a piano and sung. I love that with an acoustic guitarist with Alan uh, Scott, who's like the he's an extra member of REM for the last twenty years or something. But there's just some because um, Michael Stipe's just got the the ultimate voice, like the ultimate singing voice to me. Mm. And yeah. Ashcroft, I like Ashcroft. I think he's pretty magical as well. What he's yeah. got, but but yeah, it's Stipe's the one. He could just. I know it's a cliche, but you know, just get him reading a phone book, and I'd get a send. Yeah, there. He's. He... <laughs> oh, well, that, that, that's where we finish it. So we're going to finish. Clint recommends, and we'll we'll try and find it and put a link on to REM. Yeah. Uh, covering the trogs, lovers all around. Yeah. Clint, thank you, thank you so much for your it's time. Been a pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thank Good you for man. having me. Good man, yourself. Good luck with your podcast as well. Thank, thank you very much. Should we get another brew on? Mm-hmm.